You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. I'm Dr Doolittle and you're listening to 3RRR. We have a great show for you this morning. We are joined by two very special guests in the studio. First up is Professor Suresh Sundram. Suresh established the Cabrini Asylum Seeker and Refugee Health Hub in Brunswick and he joins us to tell us about the hub and how you can get involved. A little later, our second guest will be in, Bianca Caputi from Diabetes Victoria. Bianca will explain why we need to think about diabetes and heart disease and how their life program can help us avoid those sorts of problems down the path. On the panel this morning, I'm joined by the ever-thoughtful and clever GP extraordinaire... Oh, no. Dr. Capri, that's all. I'm not saying anything else. I'm not stirring you up. And the multitasking health sociologist. He's multitasking because he also does the panel. Dr. Panel Beater. So sit back, relax, and stay tuned for Radiotherapy. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. No pills gonna cure my ill. I got a bad case of loving you. <laughs> Oh, I'm already disorganised. I'm making a fool of myself, my friends. Hey, uh, gang, how are you? I'll start with you, Dr Capri. How are you? Yeah, good. I'm glad to be back. It's been a while since I've oh, uh, no, I was gonna say, joined the gang. It's been a couple of months. I think More that, than that, Has yeah. it? Because you had a holiday, didn't you? Somewhere, you know, exotic, and you also went up north Australia, yeah, I heard. To, to spend time with my son up in Gosford. So, yes, I haven't been... I think I, March could have been the last time I was here, so it's been a long time. Oh, I've nice missed you all. To, nice to have you back. And panel beater. How are you, man? Top of the morning. Top of the morning for you. <laughs> it's a discombobulating <laughs> morning, isn't it? Because really Maranara odd. not here. Jeez, I hope all's well with Bron and family. Yeah, yeah, yep. best wishes but to it, um, Bron and family. Different vibe when they're not... Uh, well, you know, I had, um, I had actually, I'll tell you, I had daylight savings panic. Now, it's not daylight savings, but I, I, was, engro- I was driving up from Rye and I was engrossed in a podcast. Like, it was, this, it was a really interesting interview that was both irritating me and fascinating me at the same time. It was a Mark Maron WTF interview. And so I didn't t- change to Triple R, which I normally do. <laughs> I normally get into the vibe. And so when I walked into the studio, I walked in and there's Tim Thorpe. And I, <laughs> and I think oh, shit, it must be daylight savings and I'm stuffed <laughs> up. I've come an hour early. And, and I'm walking around and not to be. Mark Maron, huh? Yeah, yeah, I was listening. You know, do you ever listen to his yeah. WTF? Yeah, yeah. I love, it. I love him. He's my favourite interviewer currently. Has Did you get angry on the year. drive? Yeah, I, I was banging. I was banging and this white Mercedes pulled in front of me and almost got my Mark Maron angst. And I wanted to crash into them. Hey, Suresh, how are you? <laughs> Good morning. Thank you so much for coming into um, this fine part of the world on such a... Nice this morning. Hey, uh, we're going to chat a little bit about your asylum seeker work in a little while, but in the meantime, just feel free to relax and jump in whenever you like because Panel Beater has been reading something that has caught his attention Yeah, got him thinking. I'm, I'm a self-diagnosed um, social media... Um, I hesitate to use the word addict, but I guess we should just own oh, up to it. Junkie. Yeah, yeah junkie. junkie. Junkie's a better word. I mean, it's maybe politically incorrect, but yeah. hey, what the hell. So, um, by way of social media, I came across a book called Irresistible, um, written by Adam Alter. He's a psychologist, but works um, with attention to things like marketing. And yep. he's, uh, he works at uh, NYU, you know, New York University. He's written this book called Irresistible, Why We Can't Stop Checking, Scrolling, Clicking and Watching. Right. And um, there's probably probably not 
a huge amount of surprises in terms of conclusions, but there's some interesting um, stories along the way that he that he raises. He um, he makes a he makes a claim that um, um, that if we don't get a handle on this, um, we're doomed. You know, basically, yes. our personalities are doomed. Our yeah. social relations are doomed, etc., etc. Can, et can anyone release any book about any social topic? without the basic underlying assumption that if we don't fix what I'm writing about and selling you this book about, the yeah, sky's going to fall down? Over. Yeah, look, to... It's the oldest trick in the book. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, anyway, I mean, yeah. that aside... So he does... I'm sure, he's, <laughs> I'm sure being a marketer is shifting units quite well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, he does He does point out we could turn it to our advantage, right? Right. If we if we get a, a get a grip on it. Um, but he, point, he, he begins by pointing off a few anomalies, like um, uh, how um, Steve Jobs famously um, didn't let his kids use the iPad, for example, um, mm. and how Evan Williams of Twitter um, didn't allow um, his children to play with touch screens oh, really? and things like this. So he sets up a couple, a couple of uh, uh, paradoxes there, perhaps. Um, and then um, he uh, talked about a an, an app. So there's this habit when you're reading his book, he's referring to social media a lot. So I'm sitting there with my phone and the hard copy of the book, and I'm going between the book and the and the and, and the apps. And the apps. Yeah. One of which is an app called Moment that he talks about. And so Moment. I download Moment M O M. Yeah. Um, and I think when it, when you download it, it, ends up being called Quality Time or something like, that, and it tracks your your phone usage. Right. Not just what apps you're on, but how often you unlock your phone, like, you know, if you've got a password on there or um, how um, how much time you're on there, what you're doing on there and so on and so forth. And it's extraordinary, the distinction between, like, you're challenged to guess how much time you do spend and then every day it'll give you a report and tell you how much time you actually spend. Mm. Um, for 88% um, of people, it was more than an hour of day with the average being three hours. Actually, off. on the phone. So hit us with no. yours. I want yours. I want. I want to know about you. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I'm up there with the average for sure. What's the so three we're average? Yeah. We're talking about social media only, or is it any phone use? Phone use, right? But um, yeah, okay. So it's not ex- exclusively social media because he's talking about other things like streaming services, games, and and so on. It's and basically so forth digital. As well. He's talking digital, about the whole digital, digital life. Okay. Yep. Right. Um, how many times do you reckon a typical user checks their phone in twenty four hours? In 24 hours, Gosh. so they're awake for, you know, uh, whatever, about 18 of them, 16 of them. I'm saying I would imagine four times an hour average users, so I'm going four times 16, 32, 64. And what, what did you say? 64. Well, okay. Um, typical user <laughs> I was... I made that up. Was, that is just shit I made up. <laughs> I didn't up. even know was, you could multiply. Was thir- oh, that's the only thing I can do. <laughs> 39 times. 39 oh, times. Those people are missing messages. But you know what? Steve, you are a junkie. I'm over 64. Yeah, clearly. Um, so 39 times, but I've just, um, according to Moment, I've already, I've already unlocked my phone 27 times this morning. Yes. See, mind yeah. you, you have got radio today. But True. having said all that, I know personally, um, um, I'd be, I don't believe in too much in behavioural addictions, but by, that's by the by. Um, but nevertheless, I know, to use the popular terminology, I'm addicted, and I know when I'm more anxious that I look at my phone even more often. Um, so I can feel it. You know, when I'm anxious, I feel myself as a sort of a... I'm picking up my phone now for those who can't see through the microphone. <laughs> clutching it to um, his chest. Clutching it, clutching it to my chest. Um, I know that it relieves my anxiety a little bit. And yeah. so when I'm jittery, I just look at it. And sometimes it's the actual act of checking messages. But a lot of the time I'll... You know, like there's certain songs I play to calm me down and also reading the newspaper, sure. reading stories. Yep. So there's, it's not just the... Well, 
you've, you've actually touched on a point he makes. He wants to make a distinction between addiction, right, Ad- addiction um, and compulsion. Ah, interesting. Right. So he talks about addiction. He uses a working definition of an indulgence which, which brings pleasure. Addiction, an indulgence which brings, brings pleasure. pleasure. Yep, and compulsion, you. an indulgence which merely bring, brings relief from some kind of anxiety. Interesting. I mean, that's a... Uh, he, he slightly bastardised traditional definitions. <laughs> Compulsion is, yeah, a repetitive act, behaviour, thought or impulse that is done in response to some anxiety-producing stimulus. That's mm. like the, my, the medical definition, at least, I learned in uni. I don't know about you guys. But, I never learned. Yeah, and, um, yeah, and I think <laughs> of an addiction... See, I think of addictions as more a pharmacological process, which is why I've always had a little bit yeah, of trouble right. with um, the concept of behavioural addictions although I respect the idea. One of the curious aspects of that addiction, um, so I'd, I'd fall into the behavioural, I don't get, ple- you know, I can't really readily say that I get pleasure from it, but it's really behavioural, I'll just pick it up randomly. And Depends what on. you're watching online. I could do. <laughs> Steve, uh, do little. I mean, realistically, <laughs> realistically, though, it does depend. If you're talking digital stuff, sometimes it's to relieve anxiety, like I was talking before, but sometimes, obviously, like if he's including watching, you know, YouTube, yep. that's just for pleasure. Well, one, one point that he makes on the back of that question of addiction is how it is dis- can be also distinguished between the consequence of, say, alcoholism is the example he uses. So if you're an alcoholic, um, um, there are supported steps that you can take to avoid, in the first, the early stages of addressing it, you know, it's to remove yourself from the triggers. Mm. But if you're addicted to online activity, most workplaces you can't, can't not be online. No. So you still need to be getting your, your email or you still need mm-hmm. to be sending off some correspondence or something like that. So there's another kind of societal workplace challenge involved in addressing whether it's addiction or compulsion. I think it's... Yeah, look, I hear, what, I hear what they're saying. It's harder, but I don't think the addiction's quite as strong as it is for alcohol. Addiction can, you know, pharmacological addiction can be rated, for example. Mm. You know, there's a standard scale that people use, one to three, I think it is, or zero to three, where um, heroin tips it at about three, yeah. marijuana's at about, I forget what it is, 0.8, um, ice is about 2.2, et cetera, et cetera. So you can, and um, similarly, you know, so getting off these things relates to how strong the addiction is and, of course, the cues and how, what your yeah. behaviours and what you see around. Like, I found, for example, there was one stage when I was looking at Facebook far too much and I felt, oh, this is just a waste of my life. <sighs> and totally. I actively stopped looking sure. for a while. And then I got to an equilibrium now where maybe I check it every second yeah. day or every day yep. instead of every, you know, five times an hour. Yeah, I mean, we're probably yet to find out whether, um, you know, the, the real life-changing consequences of something addiction like alcoholism is compared to an addiction like social media but in you know in terms of the way it can wreck people's lives and mm. the lives of those around them um but just from a classroom point of view when i'm teaching the every student is online while i'm teaching yes. right every single one of them and you your best hope is that they're googling the wikipedia definition of something you're talking about but if I'm honest with myself, I know they're not. Yeah, now, exactly. you know, and, and that can we can we can make value judgments around that one way or the other. But if it's if they're feeling a compulsion to be online checking their thing and they're missing out on the learning opportunity, all the other things that go on in the classroom um, bonding and behaviour that sets them up for life and Isn't things like that, that then there are consequences. Part of the definition of addiction is it, or, well, maybe not of addiction, I'm not, I don't know the definitions like you guys do, but um, that it actually impacts negatively on your life. It impairs your mm. ability to function. Absolutely. Uh, that's part of it. 
Um, I mean, That's my the same for any any um, you know mental disorder. Yeah. There's always uh, a core part of every definition is that it has to impact on your basically your social, occupational, or um, other functioning. Or you your sleep. Or, yeah. yeah. But the other element that's missing from here is boredom, isn't it? Because it's actually the boredom which drives a lot of the anxiety, which then drives the use of the the media. Yeah. And in a sense, what we're doing is saying that boredom is an unacceptable feeling to have at any point in time and here we have a immediate way of being able to address it well boredom wrapped up in something resembling procrastination from you know the fear of taking something on and not completing it or not being successful at it or, or something like that and and that boredom i think really kind of really entrenches it wouldn't it mm-hmm. just i know we're pressed for time um do little so i'll just wrap up with a couple of features of of okay. of the um of these things online that he points to um so he's talking about how designers engineer behavioural addiction. Um, he examines um, the way that so many apps and uh, what have you are orientated around goal setting. And the example he looks at is Fitbit. So you're constantly setting yourself up to achieve a goal and you start to um, gamify your fitness in, in the Fitbit sense. Um it's the other element of the design is around feedback loops. Mm-hmm. So most obviously around getting a like or a follow on, on your Facebook or your Instagram or, or what have you. Um, but it never ends. Like there's no end point to it. Um, he um, addresses uh, the, another technique by designer engineers of where everything is levelled. So you start off at a beginner level and you have a, an early success and then you get better and better and better and better. Mm. Um, and ultimately, you're, so you're moving up through levels of difficulty, which obviously you don't want to be beaten by an app, you know, so you keep going on there. Um, and, um, and then he talks about uh, in relation to, say, YouTube and um, streaming net services, um, the, the cliffhanger device, which is a tried and true device from television since television's yep. been around. But when it starts to become on streaming devices and you don't have to wait until next week to get the next episode, mm. when the next episode is just a matter it's of binging. staying, it's just, yeah. you're just binging. And there's a fabulous Portlandia episode on binging. Um, and, um, then, and then finally, um, he just pointed to an experiment that was done and a paper published in uh, 2012 where um, the experiment was set up so that two people who were relatively unfamiliar to each other, if not totally unfamiliar to each other, were introduced in a room. They were the only two in the room and they were left to their own, um, pardon the pun, devices to begin communicating. And the uh, quality and quantity of communication that was done when those two people were just themselves alone in the room was markedly different from the quality and quantity of communication when they both had their phones on the table mm. and um and they're just you know so the distraction was there and not, not necessarily they weren't necessarily going to it but the the you know the qualitative assessment of the um of the experiment was quite striking I think when people start talking hashtag yeah and hash, I think that's a sign <laughs> when we start yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, worse when someone yeah. says to lol Blow, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah or actually You've got a problem. Yeah. Verbalises yeah. smiley face. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that book again, that's um, Irresistible, Why We Can't Stop, Checking, Scrolling, Clicking and Watching by Adam Alter. Out now. Thank you, Panel Beater. That is interesting mm. stuff. On the panel this morning, you've just listened to Panel Beater. We've also got myself, Doolittle and Dr Capri. And after the break, we're going to talk about the asylum... Let me get the name right. The Cabrini Asylum Seeker and Refugee Health Hub um, with Professor Suresh Sundram. 
You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We're just having a little bit of fun in here, peoples. Um, yeah, you're listening to Radio Therapy. Hey, uh, let's get back to business. Let me introduce for you Professor Suresh Sundaram. Um, Suresh is the head of adult psychiatry at Monash Medical Centre and a professor at Monash University. We're going to tell you more about him, but he's basically an expert on refugee mental health. He's consulted various groups like the World Health Organisation, the Australian Government, the UNHCR, which is the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. He's done so much in this area and he's been running a psychiatric clinic in asylum, in asylum, at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre for over a decade, providing pro bono psych services to asylum seekers. And in 2016, with Cabrini Health, where I was born, just a little aside, just to personalise it, he established the Cabrini Asylum Seeker and Refugee Health Hub. G'day, Suresh. Good morning, Dr. Doolittle. It is so nice to have you in here. Well, I was thinking, before we get on to the sort of the health, mental health stuff, why don't you set the scene a little bit and tell us a little bit about, you know, where we're up to with asylum seekers. How many are there currently on Nauru and Manus Island and, say, in Victoria? So the, the situation from a UN global perspective is the worst that it's ever been in the history of humanity. And where what we have at the moment is somewhere in the order of 65 million displaced people around the world, which would put it in the top 25 countries if it was a, a country of displaced persons. So that's pretty much 10%. Oh, wait a sec, billion, 7 billion in the world? Yeah, so, yeah. so a bit, bit under. Yeah, uh, just under. About 1%. Or oh, sorry. Out, yeah. 1%, I'm getting yeah. my maths wrong. <laughs> I was boasting. Oh, I'm good at maths. Multiplying. It came back That's to That's division. Okay, right. so we've got but, 1% but of the that, world currently. That, yeah, so yeah. of that 65 million, what we have are about two-thirds or thereabouts are people who are termed internally displaced. What yep. that means is that the civil conflict or whatever other reasons have meant that they can't live in their own home and they've had to move to some other safe place within their country. Right. And that's a relative term in safety. The other 20 plus million people are people who've had to flee across their national border because their country's not safe and they've had to seek asylum in an adjacent country normally. And we need to remember that the countries which are the source countries for refugees are the countries where all the major conflicts are occurring. So places like Syria, Afghanistan, Somalia, etc. What happens, of course, is that people go to the countries which are immediately adjacent, so mm -hmm. countries such as Lebanon, Jordan, uh, Pakistan. Those are the countries which host the majority of asylum seekers and refugees. And then what happens is the Western industrialised nations see a trickle of those people. So to give you some idea, something like 85% of all the world's asylum seekers and refugees are housed at the moment being looked after in developing nations mm. and about 10 to 15 percent have actually hit the western industrialized nations so that gives you some idea of the global context of the situation now in australia we have approximately 25 to 30,000 asylum seekers in our country which, 25 to 30,000 yep. which means that there's about one in a thousand people in the australian population who would be termed an asylum seeker uh, at the moment. In contrast, in Lebanon, somewhere between 20 to 25% of the population are refugees from Syria. Mainly. Can I just say, refugee versus asylum seeker, what's the difference? Right. So the 
person, when they first cross a national border, so you can't be an asylum seeker or refugee in your own country, you have to cross a national boundary, you are then in a situation where you may seek the protection of another country. Now, that process of seeking protection means that you're an asylum seeker, you're seeking asylum. However, you don't become a refugee until you've been determined by some authority that you meet the criteria for the UN Refugee Convention or any of the other UN conventions okay. or national government conventions which mm. define what a refugee is. Mm. Okay. So we've got twenty five to 30,000 in Australia. Yes, approximately. Does that include the Manus Island? And so... so on Manus Island and in Nauru, there is approximately 2,200 people who currently are being housed in Manus Island and Nauru or currently in Australia but have come from Manus Island or Nauru for medical treatment for the most part. And so what basic rights, what are the core rights that they do and don't have whilst they're asylum seekers or refugees? Does that make sense? Is that a... Yeah, so the, the first and important point is that if you're a refugee in Australia, you're fundamentally the same as any Australian uh, resident <coughs> or any Australian citizen. Right, so, so Medicare, Social Security, everything. whatever. So, so Australia, when it determines you to be a refugee, offers you the full gamut of services and protections and all the rest that any Australian citizen or permanent resident would enjoy. Mm. So they're, in a sense, part of the Australian community and... Australia does a really fantastic job of being able to assist and integrate and uh, develop uh, sort of an, uh, refugees to allow them to, to integrate into the Australian community. Asylum seekers, on the other hand, are a different kettle of fish altogether. And the suite of services that are available to them from a Commonwealth perspective or a state perspective is dependent upon the type of visa that they hold whilst they're seeking asylum. Mm -hmm. So some visas offer people uh, the right to study, the right to work, the right to access Medicare. Other visas don't provide those rights. Mm -hmm. So you can't do any of those or can't access any of those services. Oh. And wasn't there some... <clears throat> I'm trying to get my head around, there was some big issue around this um, just in the papers recently where the Australian government withdrew a whole lot of um, rights for people and the Victorian government, at least in Victoria, I, I understand in the last few days, stepped up and said that they'll do it. What was that bit all about? Yeah. That's right. So as I mentioned before, there are about 400 people from Manus Island and Nauru who are currently in Australia receiving right. medical treatment. Those are the people who might have had um, illnesses or disorders which couldn't be treated either in Papua New Guinea or in Nauru and have been transferred to Australia for medical care, fundamentally. The Australian Government, or the Commonwealth uh, or the Department of Immigration and Border Protection, last week announced that they would seek to move those people back to Manus Island uh, or Nauru and that in anticipation of doing that it would uh, withdraw their access to social benefits and supports and instead provide them with the opportunity to have work rights uh, in an attempt to try and uh, get them to return back to, to Manus Island in Nauru. Now, the Victorian state government uh, la at the end of last week has said that it would attempt to try and support the number that are in Victoria if they end up being destitute or potentially destitute. So that's so essentially, the government obviously doesn't have the right to tell them to go back. Otherwise, they would have. And instead, the idea is they're trying to 
starve them out, so to speak, or whatever. So the the Commonwealth Department of Immigration Border Protection would have the right to be able to move people. Oh, really? Right. Yes. Uh, however, I think that the attempt is to try and uh, ensure that there are sufficient push factors in Australia to get them to make the decision to go. Okay, so let's move on to the healthcare side of things. What are the main health problems that um, I suppose in particular the asylum seekers face? Mm. So asylum seekers have, if you like, all the sorts of physical health issues that you might expect somebody who's coming from a developing country or from a lower income country. They have the potential for infectious diseases and other such uh, disorders which then potentially impact upon their health and they get screened in the way that any refugee would coming from a, a country like that would have. However, what we tend to see with asylum seekers in particular because of the potential of a protracted claim process or the refugee determination process can be quite protracted and because of a whole set of stress factors that they experience whilst they're in Australia, we see uh, the emergence of a large number of mental disorders in that population. So what we see are things like post-traumatic stress disorder, major depression being especially prominent. And Suresh, is there a, how does that manifest in the first instance? So are people uh, self-identifying um, and presenting themselves to healthcare professionals or are, um, are third parties saying, hey, we need to get some support in there for you and, and then the introduction is made to health professionals? That's a really important point because, in fact, most people who've come are people with high degrees of resilience because they've had to negotiate a, an asylum journey, so to speak, and as a consequence of that, they tend to be reasonably uh, capable, competent people, and they, in that level, can't identify when they're distressed or experiencing trouble. So what we tend to find is that a lot of these people won't present uh, off the bat themselves and they require other people to identify mm. the problems for them. The problem there, of course, is that a lot of health and welfare services won't necessarily see mental disorders as being a, a prominent feature of people's presentations. So what we've done with the support of the Cabrini Foundation is develop a, a screening tool that uh, non-health workers can use to administer to asylum seekers to... Uh, identify people who are vulnerable or at risk of developing mental disorders so that then they can be referred to appropriate service providers. Suresh, uh, sounds like you do an amazing job. What, what got you interested in this area? So back in 2001, there was a certain uh, Norwegian container ship called the Tampa, which mm -hmm. uh, picked up a boatload of Afghani and Iraqi asylum seekers uh, off the northwestern Western Australian coast and then attempted to take those people to the closest port, which at that time was Western Australia. And that ship was intercepted by the Australian Navy at the direction of the then Prime Minister, Mr Howard. And that event, which seemed at that time extraordinary, I think polarised the Australian community and the community sort of, I think, went into right down the middle on that. Yes. Some people supported the Prime Minister's decision, other people thought it was an outrage. At that point in time, my perception was that it was uh, the need for people to stand up and to, to make a point about where they thought Australia should be heading with regards to these types of issues. And so I became interested at that point in time. Uh, 
and then from there I uh, contacted the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre or they contacted me and from there we set up a, a pro bono psychiatric clinic for asylum seekers, which I did for about a decade or so. And then uh, I realised that there needed to be a health service which was specifically dedicated for asylum seekers and went knocking on lots of doors mm. until finally Cabrini uh, had the foresight to recognise the, the need for such a service and they've been instrumental in developing the service uh, and establishing it in Brunswick. Fantastic. So tell us about the Health Hub then. Yep, so the Health Hub, as I said, is an initiative with Cabrini Health. They uh, have been uh, behind the, the project and what we've been able to do is to establish a primary care and mental health uh, service within uh, Brunswick, being the area which is an area of need uh, for asylum seekers and, and, and new refugees. What we do there is we have pro bono psychiatrists, pro bono GPs and other healthcare providers. We've got psychologists, nurses, uh, social workers mm -hmm. who provide services for asylum seekers who are generally speaking not eligible for Medicare so that that's our primary group of people that that we provide services for mm -hmm. we'll see other people of course we won't say no to people uh, asylum seekers but our primary intent is to provide services to asylum seekers who don't have Medicare. Mm -hmm. Can you charge Medicare for the people who to help fund it I'm thinking? Yeah, for, yeah you that, can. That's right. right we can. And so um, people walking off the street or do they we, we generally get people referred by welfare agencies who might be looking after asylum seekers, so agencies such as Red Cross or AIMS or Life Without Barriers, those sorts of agencies will refer people to us, mm -hmm. uh, but also people could potentially walk in. We also get lots of referrals from private GPs for the psychiatry service. Mm. It just okay. sounds like... Oh, sorry, did you want to ask something? Well, I'm just keen, so um, it's really interesting to hear how um, the asylum seekers will, will find you. What about um, the staffing of the of the centre? Where where are you sourcing all your staffing and your medical support? Yeah, so we need pro bono doctors, generally speaking, to provide services for our for our clinics. We have a, a dedicated number of GPs who provide sessions uh, on a rotating basis, and we are looking for volunteer psychiatrists to provide pro bono sessions as well. Yeah. So what do you, so you need GPs, psychiatrists, what about social workers? See, they're so socially minded, they're probably all volunteered already. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So the other groups? Yeah, so generally speaking, we've we've been looking at um, psychologists, psychiatrists and GPs as the first sort of cohort of people. We've got uh, a mental health service, which has a social worker. We've got nurses who are working within the hub and they're being paid, so they're, they're on salaried position. And um, when people volunteer, like how long do they need to volunteer for? What's the sort of minimum commitment a week? So we have a range of, of uh, opportunities for people. Some people might volunteer weekly, some people fortnightly, some people uh, three weekly or thereabouts. Any less frequently than that becomes a little bit problematic in terms of continuity of care. Yeah. And generally speaking, we ask people to commit for six months and then we can make a decision and they can make a decision as to whether this is the type of work for them or not. Gee, that's very doable. Yeah. That's Yeah, that yeah. is fantastic. People out there listening who've got spare time, <laughs> where can they find out more, Suresh? So they can contact the Cabrini Asylum Seeker Refugee Health Hub through the Cabrini website, which yep. is cabrini.com.au, uh, and that would be the, the first port of call. That's very easy to find. And where I is the it. hub? Hub's just on Sydney Road in... 
Brunswick, so 503 Sydney Road, Brunswick. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you so much for coming in and explaining all that. The work you do just sounds amazing. It's um, it's always incredible. We get to interview a lot of people who do, you know, things like you, and it's so it's obviously rare in the community. But we get to hear of them a lot, and it's often some event, you know, like for you it was Tampa, and that, you know, empowered you, and then bang, you know, 10, 15 years later, you know, it's become a significant part of your life and a significant achievement within our community. So, you know, hats off to the work you do and the work Mm -hmm. of the Hub and uh, to Cabrini also for sponsoring it. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Um, You're listening to myself, Dr Doolittle, Dr Capri, trusty GP, that sort of rhymes, panel beater, trusty international health sociologist... That's what I call him. He always gets mad at me. He, I, you know, I have a tendency to exaggeration in case anyone's uh, ever noticed. <laughs> it's, it's, it's more misrepresentation than exaggeration, that one. <laughs> but more importantly, we have a special guest in the studio with us right now, Bianca Caputi joins us from Diabetes Victoria. Bianca is the life, exclamation mark, program's referral and primary care team leader and has been involved with the program for about seven years. During this time, she's seen the program evolve to best support Victorians at risk of type 2 diabetes, heart disease and stroke. The Life Program is about to celebrate its 10th anniversary. Set off the streamers and pop the corks. Um, (laughs) And has helped to motivate and support thousands of Victorians to have a healthier life and prevent the onset of chronic conditions. So first up, g'day, Bianca. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. I hope you jogged in here and on your way ate fruit and vegetables. <laughs> yes, yeah. I did. I did start the day with a healthy breakfast, so yes. that's good. Hey, before um, Capri kicks off with some questions, uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself. What is your professional background? I, I went to look it up and I couldn't find sure. it when I was Googling. So I have a background in health science with a major in public health. Oh, so by my terminology, you're a world leader in <laughs> health, Scientology <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> in health, <laughs> Scientology. <laughs> I'm not very good with terminology generally am I yeah and so what got you involved in this um I think it was just um wanting to work in the space of health promotion yeah um and for me um studying the health sciences was a really good leeway into that um and it's just so interesting in in very rewarding in um improving people's health and well-being so um and being part of diabetes victoria and the life program is empowering me to do that um which is great so it's nice to know that at the end of every day at work you can walk away making a difference feeling good that's great yeah, it's great uh, look I'm embarrassed to say that I can't believe it's 10 years <laughs> since amazing, I'm a bit of a late it? adopter to um, referring p- patients to the life program but since I've discovered it I'm just right into it um, it's a great program and I'll talk about my experiences in a minute but can you tell us a bit about life and why it is such a valuable uh, thing that the Victorian government has decided to put some money into? Sure. Um, well, I might set the scene first. Um, I think for most people, we do know that type 2 diabetes is a serious chronic condition. Um, in Victoria, there are about more than 80 people developing diabetes every day, and the incidence is increasing across all ages. Um, if we sort of draw in specifically to Victoria, there are about three out of five Victorians at risk of developing type 2 diabetes. Um, the statistics are telling us that about 80% of type, the type 2 diabetes epidemic, epidemic is driven by weight gain. Um, it's largely resulting from unhealthy diet and inadequate physical activity. So the good news is, though, um, about 60% of type 2 diabetes cases may be prevented or delayed. Um, and that's what we're here. We're here to... Um, empower people to make small changes in their lifestyle um, through improving their healthy eating and engaging in more physical activity, managing stress um, and just trying to get on track with their lives. 
Um, the program began in 2007. Hey, so before you get to the program, I just want to see, did anyone do the risk online? I jumped <laughs> online and did it. Yeah. Did you do it, Capri? Yeah, I, I bet you're low. I don't score. I've been to Capri's house for dinner and, you know, like it's like it's like being dumped into a market garden and being told <laughs> to start Steve eating. Steve sees green and goes purple. <laughs> 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 yeah, what is that? Yeah, push that aside. Do, do you eat that? Yeah. Um, what about you, Panel B? Did you? Just I, I didn't have a chance to do the test. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I'm behaving myself a lot more recently. I've changed a few things. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think I came out as median risk, um, the, uh, and I think I would have come out higher. Except the risk on it asked you what your size of clothing was, rather than what your weight your, and height was. Your waist measurement. Yeah, your and waist. you know, I didn't really know that. You know, I just had a guess. Oh, I sort of get medium clothes mostly, and you know, and I think that lower. Whereas actual, I think I'm uh, mildly overweight. If I did it on BMI, and I think I should have been higher. Anyway, what do sure. you score, um, Bianca? <laughs> Well, I haven't done it for a little while, so... If you um... score anything above <laughs> low, I'm reporting you to the diabetes board. Yeah, so tell us more. You were going to say a little bit about the program. Um, yeah, so as I was saying, the program began back in 2007. Yeah. Um, so as you mentioned, we're hitting nearly 10 years now, um, which is fantastic. The program's funded by the Victorian government um, and it's delivered by Diabetes Victoria. We have accumulated some impressive statistics. Um, we've had more than 74,000 Victorians who have undertaken the risk assessment. Oh, I'd love to put these things into my head. 74,000 <laughs> Victorians over 10 years, so about 7,000-odd a year. Um, gee, that's a lot a week. It is. That's good. Um, and I guess that's our call to action. We want yeah. people to jump online. Yeah. The test only takes three minutes to do. 10 questions, very straightforward. Um, and if people don't want to do it online, they can go speak to their local doctor or local pharmacist to see where they sit with their risk. Can I just ask you, though, because I'm often wondering about risk. I sometimes think the people who do the right things about risk, it's the people who are at low risk. It's preaching to the converted. You know, I know that with mental health. And you see, you know, it's like the smokers don't look at the sm- <laughs> Mind you, smoking, we've done really well. We've yes. halved our rates in 20 years. Um, what are the cross-section of the 70-odd thousand like? In terms of, are they high risk, medium risk, or low risk people who are joining the program? Um, for the program and for people to be able to participate in the program, we are targeting to those who are at high, high risk. risk. So yep. anyone who scores um, twelve or above on the OSD risk assessment tool, um, which is just a standardised tool, um, they're the people that we want to engage in the program. Yeah, I find that um, people are not just just skimming in. They're either high risk, you know, they score well above twelve, or they're, you know. They don't score above mm. 12 at all. So there's very few I'm referring who are 12, 13. They're all sort of 18, 24, you know, 30. They're, they're really – most of them are at very high risk mm-hmm. and um, and it's it's fantastic to give, to have refer them to, to another thing rather than me just giving them the usual you need to, you know, yeah. exercise, blah, blah, blah. watch exercise, your diet, blah, diet, you know, this nah. is really yeah. – and I'll let you describe the program, but uh, it's really useful from a um, primary practitioner's perspective to have something to actually provide it's almost like a script yep. you know so people come in and want a, a script for something well this is a script for get on board kickstart their sort of lifestyle modifications so that they can actually reduce their overall risk and just to remind everyone the big risk factors i'll try and guess them high blood pressure obesity age what else well s- smoking uh, yep. high cholesterol Is smoking good or bad i always get confused <laughs> Yeah, okay. High cholesterol. Well, it depends what you're smoking. Maybe 
Yeah, probably doesn't um, actually. <laughs> Uh, right, yeah, right. well, there are, lo- there are lots of them. And, and that's the other thing. I'm really, having um, gone on the website last night, I didn't realise there are other groups that I need to be targeting. For example, girls who've got polycystic ovarian syndrome, that's people right. who've had a history of gestational diabetes. There's actually a whole lot of people who really who are eligible to access this that I didn't know about. So, I, yeah, as I say, I'm really embarrassed to be such a late ad- adopter for a program that's been around for 10 years. I, yeah. And is it free, by the way, before yeah, you tell us the is. program? It's free. It's okay. free. So now hit us with the program. <laughs> now, now that I know it's free, my ears have pricked and, up, and my back the... straightened. I'm ready. To, and you know, I walk past Diabetes Victoria every day. You're like up on the top of Elizabeth Street, aren't we you? Are, yeah, we are. I know. I knew I wandered past it. Each and that's morning the great thing because people often say, "Oh, you know, I've got a, pri- uh, a personal trainer and I, you know, a dietitian costs you that." This is a free program, six sessions with health mm. professionals who are just there. For you know, talking to you uh, and dealing with your risk factors and trying to motivate you to get on board and, and you know, improve your long-term health. I think it's a great program. So I've pumped it up. Tell us what it yes. is. Have. <laughs> so as a statewide program, people have the option to join a local group course. Yep. Um, we have um, more than 150 community-based health professionals who are delivering this program. Mm-hmm. So far and wide, metro, rural, regional. Um, and there are about almost 90 organisations who have committed um, staff and resources to delivering this prevention service. So we are very um, happy with those that are on board. Um, and, of course, GPs and pharmacists also play a really important role in screening patients and customers and referring them onto the program. Um, if for People are living busy lives, so we also have the option of a telephone health coaching service available. So it's really important that if people are found to be at high risk um, and that they actually want to do something about it, the key is to find what works for them um, and what they can fit within their day and what will keep them on track. So six weeks, what happens? Um, so it's like say sessions. I enrol- six sessions. Yep. What happens Over if I enroll tomorrow? Okay, so on? if you were to enroll tomorrow, um, Which, and I might, by the way, <laughs> very good. Um, you have the option to either do the group course or telephone health coaching, and we can get you started as soon as possible. Um, you will, um, if you do the group, you'll be um, obviously joining a group with other like people, um, and these sessions are led by health professionals. You'll be learning about healthy eating, physical activity, um, stress, um, how to improve your sleeping habits, and all those sorts of things. But I guess um, the most important important thing is most people do know what they should be yeah. doing and how they should be yeah. doing it. Um, what we're here to do also is act, keep people on track to try and do that, keep them motivated, keep them engaged. Um, so um, everybody's living a busy lifestyle um, and at one point or another we try and keep our health at the top of the list but it does seem to um, drop down. So, yeah, it's just ensuring that people can make a difference in their own lives. And that's the big thing. As you say, I spend my day talking to people about things they already know. You know, they know what they have to do it's just having someone there keeping them on track and you know even the phone the phone um type counseling some people say i really look forward to that phone call uh just to talk about how i'm going what i'm up to and what i've achieved so it's just that you know that constant reminder and having someone on your case and on your side in a good way yeah yeah yeah, on your side (laughs) and setting goals so um you sort of know where you're heading and what you're going to do and and what steps you need to take to get there bianca it sounds like an incredible challenge if it's if we're pointing to behaviors again like we were Mm -hmm. speaking earlier on um uh, today we're talking to behaviors people create lifetime behaviors and you've got these six sessions Mm -hmm. 
What can people reason? What can you guys hope for, and what can those participating in the program reasonably hope to accomplish in in six weeks? We don't want people to um, come in and do our program and uh, expect to lose ten kilos in uh, six sessions. Six um, sessions. Sorry. It's all about making small, sustainable behaviour changes, um, and it's about them identifying what changes they need to make, and it's equipping them with the knowledge, the tools, the resources in how to do that, and. Um, you know, pointing out that they um, can actually make a difference in their own life. So what does success look like then um, sure. in that case? So our recent evaluation findings have indicated that those who have completed the six-month program um, reduce their risk of developing type 2 diabetes by up to 40%. So this is showing that there's been improvement in their healthy eating behaviours, physical activity levels, um, body mass index, weight and waist circumference. See, the weight's the thing that I bet most people want to get down, isn't it? We're all worried about that. Two-thirds of Australians now are overweight. One-third of the world is overweight, but Australia is at one of the forefronts of the epidemic. Aussie, Aussie. Sorry? Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Oi, yeah. oi, oi. Yes. Or as it's new, now becoming Aussie, 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 eat, eat, eat. eat, eat. <laughs> um, so... You know, I'm just reflecting on that, you know, because you know what goes through my head when I'm thinking about will I sign up or won't I sign up? I sort of think I know it all already. This is that point mm. you were making, Capri. I know it all already. What's it going to teach me? But on the other hand, I go to the gym and I see all these people with personal trainers yeah. having, and they know what to do. They know that you've got to lift the weights and ride the bike and swim yeah. in the pool. Yeah. But they've got someone saying to them, now it's time to lift the weights, now it's time to ride the bike, etc. It clearly obviously adds something. And the other thing is not everyone does oh, know. Good point. Good yeah, point. not everyone actually mm. does know. And there's a, a big part of the community that kind of know it. They just don't know how to do it or they need that sort of, yeah. Can I add a, a third profile of person? And that's the person who seems to be thinking they're hearing a lot of different messages. Yes. So one week they're being yeah. told it's about sugar, the next yeah. week they're being told it's Good about point. some other lifestyle thing and they're going, if you guys can't organise your information, then I'm just going to keep carrying on yeah. until... Yeah, the that, path of least resistance. That's a really good point, actually. Yeah. You know, I've noticed this a lot over the last five years, the increase in risk cynicism. So the public, you know, every time I hear, I sit around a pub or a cafe and I hear which people... Which a lot. Which is pretty much every day. <laughs> um, and I hear people say, you know, someone will bring up some risk. Oh, you know, it's, you know, salt, you've got to cut back your salt. And they'll always be at least one person at the table who says, oh, bloody hell, too much salt. Now it's good. Now it's bad. Alcohol before two glasses a day was good for you. Now it's bad for you. Then it was four. Yes, now it's, it's obesity. True. Now they're saying this. Oh, come on. This is all just people trying to tell you what to do. Do you think there's an element of risk cynicism in our community? I think there is. Um, and it can get quite confusing for people to actually keep up to date with everything. Um, but we try to bring that all back into perspective um, and sometimes we are stating the obvious um, that um, there is risk associated with a lot of these things. So it's just how do people best manage that? Mm. So how do they get on board, Bianca? What, what do you suggest people do? Well, our call to action on a Sunday morning is to jump online on our website, um, www.lifeprogram.org.au, and to take the um, online risk assessment. Um, as I said earlier, it will only take about three minutes and it can help determine your level of developing type 2 diabetes um, in the next five years. And, and if they do that, can they then enrol themselves? They can. Um, we have a dedicated um, central referral team who can make contact with um, those who may be at risk and are interested in doing the program and to discuss their options with them in how they'd like to get involved. Um, so I think the, the first start is just to jump online. Um, alternatively, they can call our 13 risk number, which is 137475, and also speak to one of our team members. 137475, 13 Or see your, your GP. Your trusted GP. Or see GP. your GP. Yeah, I think it is so important, you know, because 
I think the context to it with this risk cynicism is that it's actually that we have changing risks in our society. So mm. while smoking was easily the biggest risk factor 20 years ago, our rates have now gone from 40% to 20%. So for the people who are still smoking, that's their number one target. But yes. for the other 80% of us, the biggest things now are really the, tr- the changeable things, you know, some things like blood pressure and stuff, you need medications, but the behavioural mm. things are essentially obesity, Poor diet as an independent risk factor. So even if you're not obese, eating crap food um, and physical inactivity. And so, you know, really these life programs do, in a sense, represent... It's the new quit campaign. Yes, Mind you, just like giving this, you know, the quit smoking, our success rates in smoking were a mixture of really three or four things. The quit programs, which is the analogy to your life program. The plus, packaging. Mm. Um, well, that came late. It, um, advertising was the next big wave. They cut out advertising generally and then it all went to sport. Then they cut it out of sport. Then it was taxing. The cigarettes got more and more expensive and now, and now basically you have to be a gazillionaire to smoke a cigarette. And then finally the plain packaging. And then, in fact... You know, all the other stuff like finance companies and stuff. So, and we need to do exactly the same for obesity, diet, and exercise. And we need to do those societal changes. And with my sociology hat on, there was another factor I think uh, really important with oh, the good, smoking, good. which yeah. was um, cultural pressure. So you, you became a yes, pariah yes, for smoking. Of course, all the banning smoking yes. places, I forgot and, that one. And, until, and, and I think there are cultural elements to all of, you know, something like diabetes yeah. and, and the, you know, our health. And well-being is often uh, representative of the health and well-being of the culture overall. Just lastly, my, you know, I've been a doctor for a long time now, which surprises me or astounds me how long I've been a doctor for. But in all my years now, I realise, and maybe I'm a bit, I'm a bit jaded, but prevention is actually better than cure. I mean, all the diseases that I see on a regular basis, I think if only, you know, uh, you know, we got, we're sort of now trying to catch up with all, particularly all the obesogenic related mm-hmm. chronic illnesses. And I just think this is a great program to try and... I agree. Sort of you know, one other thing though, if we're doing just lastlies, yeah. I want to do a just oh, no, lastly. Last <laughs> no, you don't get to do a lastly when there's, just when there's still two minutes to oh. go. Um, uh, <laughs> the other just lastly is we have to do this in a way that's not fat shaming. That's the thing. See, yes, it was, it was considered true. socially acceptable to that's do smoker true. shaming, even yes. though I'm not sure it was. But certainly we yes. don't want to be fat shaming. And I think that's part of the challenge in this whole area, that um, unlike the smoking campaign where we could, you know, where there was an element of that, the, the majority who didn't smoke could scowl at the others, um, we have to think of better ways of doing it. But on that... Ju- oh, just lastly... <laughs> yeah, and great, now you're doing it just great, lastly when there isn't back. time to go. Thanks, thanks Bianca. Yeah. Thanks for coming yeah. in. <laughs> Thank you hey, very much. It is great to have you back too, um, Dr Capri, and it's also great to have you in the studio, Dr Panelbeater. And Bianca... Caputi, I think I pronounced that right. I didn't have my notes in front of me. From Diabetes Victorious, thank you so much for coming in this morning. Thank you very much. And can I also say a special thanks to Professor Suresh Sundram from the uh, Asylum Seeker and Refugee uh, Health Hub, uh, the Cabrini, et cetera, et cetera, um, that he uh, co-set up with Cabrini Health for um, coming in this morning and telling us all that stuff about... um, what we can do and how people can get involved and don't forget he did have a call out for volunteers if people out there want to get involved jump on the Cabrini website and have a look how you can get involved thank you everyone for listening and uh, we will be back next Sunday this has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au